we solemnly continue with the more serious aspects of the question, what do we know about the righteousness of God from the Bible? We have seen that personality is ascribed to God in the Bible, which qualifies God to make moral choices. When the Bible affirms that God is love, we are to understand that God continually chooses to guide all his activities according to what is best for all moral beings. In the mind of God lies the perfection of truth and wisdom, which must be the guide of all of God's actions. God's regard for all moral beings has led him to be just toward all. This involves a public declaration before all of the moral character of each, for which purpose God has declared that there will be a judgment. God will render to each his just due. Man is an immortal soul and must spend eternity somewhere. A most solemn thought, is it not? We have established this certainty that the Bible teaches an eternal separation of those who have responded to the grace of God, who have sincerely repented of sin, and have been forgiven through faith in the death of Christ for them, and those who have persisted on in their selfish ways, in spite of the pleadings and workings of the Holy Spirit. In the second place, we must with great sorrow and concern set forth the dreadful nature of the eternal punishment of the unsaved, in hope that many will heed the kind pleadings of the Holy Spirit to repent of sin and be reconciled to God before it is too late. Now is the day of salvation, Paul wrote. Now the Lord Jesus, in his great austere dignity, is standing at the heart's door of every individual, beckoning him to be saved. Our Lord likened the awfulness of future punishment to an unquenchable fire and the unending destruction of worms, and said that the doom was so terrible that it would be profitable for one to cut off a hand or a foot or pluck out an eye if these avenues of temptation were standing in the way of repentance and submission to God. And so we read in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48, these most solemn words from the lips of the kind, loving Master, who wept over sinners and looked upon them with great interest and tenderness, even speaking these solemn words. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, in the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. How tremendously solemn are these words. 
In our Lord's portrayal of the rich man and Lazarus, we notice an eternal separation with a great gulf fixed. The one was comfortable and happy, the other tormented. It appears that the memory is the great tormentor, as the ways of God are endlessly pondered, and the persistent rejection of the love and mercy of God is considered. We read in Luke chapter 16, verses 22 to 26 of this reaction. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, of course, the beggar was not saved because he was a beggar, and the rich man was not lost because he was a rich man. They were saved because of their rejection of the grace of God and their refusal to be reconciled to God. And so the rich man in hell lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember, oh, what a word, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Since the rich man was in agonizing certainty over his own doom, he wanted in the worst way to have his five brothers warned, to awaken them from sin, so that they might avoid the doom that came to him. God answered that they had the moral light enough to awaken them, even as he did in his life and that if they pressed on to his destiny, nothing more could be done for them. What a warning to all the impenitent. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 41 and 46, we notice that the future of those refusing reconciliation to God is punishment, that it is like a consuming fire, that it is everlasting, and that the place of such torment and confinement was not prepared for man, but for Satan and his rebellious angels. Man is an intruder, pressing his way into this destiny of rebellion. There we read, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And in verse 46, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. These are the words of the Lord, who certainly ought to know whereof he spoke. And again in verse 30 of Matthew 25, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our Lord also likened 
this unhappy place as one of outer darkness or separation from moral light, and that there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth instead of a jovial foolishness, like many suppose. None shall defy God there. In the twelfth chapter of Luke's Gospel, verses 47 and 48, our Lord in a parable made it clear that all would not receive the same punishment, for this would not be just. Men would be punished not according to the specific deeds that they have done only, but according to the moral understanding that they possessed when they did what they did. And so we read in these verses, And that servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did com commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required, and to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. So man's guilt and responsibility immensely increases according to his moral perception of truth. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 26 to 31, we read a solemn account. For if we sin willfully, after that we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despises Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under foot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so we have brought out forcibly that it is of greatest sin of all to reject the tender pleadings of the Savior, whose love and inner blessings have been experienced in true sanctification. Notice that this passage described those who had been sanctified. Christians ought to fear the excessive guilt of reacting despitefully to the dealings of the Holy Spirit, which are for their good. But as we go on to Second Peter 2.17, we read the dreadful expression of the mist of darkness being reserved forever. Again in Jude 13, we read of the blackness of darkness that shall be the lot of those who have rejected the kind, loving, merciful grace of God. How awful and solemn are these words. As we come to the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And again in Chapter 21, verse 8 of Revelation. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So not only 
Are these likened to the dreadful concept of fire, a lake of fire, but also to the dreadful concept of brimstone, with an extensive list of the characteristics of the inhabitants thereof? But in the third place, the Apostle Paul most solemnly warns all not to be deceived into complacency, but to awake from spiritual sleep, since the righteous wrath of God is on its way upon the children of disobedience. May all consider the solemn destiny of sin and rebellion against a righteous and loving God, the sentences God pronounces, the rewards He bestows, the penalties he inflicts are all righteous. No one can find fault with the actions of God as the great moral governor of the universe when the full orb of truth is viewed. The great tragedy of a lost soul is embodied in the word from, as we considered in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. It is from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It is to be outside the admiring and happy throng of heaven. Oh, how we pray that many will respond to the grace of the loving God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this revelation of the solemn future of those who reject Thy kind love in this great hour of Thy mercy. Oh, how we pray that many may ponder the seriousness of life may repent of all sin, exercise faith in the death of Jesus, be forgiven and restored, and go on to serve thee happily forevermore in Jesus' name. Amen.